0: Noticing what people hate. My inbox is flooded with folks pitching every business under the sun that could leverage ChatGPT or insert the name of your favorite AI tool here. The titles of these emails are aggressive, declaring that this or that industry is, quote, dead, sometimes in all caps, once with all caps and multiple skull and bones emojis. So far, I've gotten emails saying that banking, journalism, travel agents, that's the one that had the skull and bones emoji, Google, loneliness, and even helping people start startups are dead. Hey, the loneliness thing piqued my attention a little bit because loneliness is a full-blown epidemic with 36% of all Americans and 61% of young adults feeling, quote, severe and serious loneliness. I am not sure that a product using ChatGPT is going to be the answer to that, but I'm also not sure it isn't. And any time spent on that problem is time well spent, so go nuts. And the others, yeah, fine, have some fun. Playing around with new tech that makes things possible today that weren't a week ago is great. But as always, leading with the problem, specifically one you've got asymmetric information on, is better than starting with the tech. Specifically, hunting the smallest atomic unit of pain, the moment that you recognize that others don't, increases the odds you succeed because it increases the odds you get initial traction. The first implementation of AI for most industries is not going to be an industry overhaul, but a solution to a small niche burning problem that results in a status level jump for the customer, one with trackable metrics and a person who owns those metrics and will get promoted if those metrics improve. That is a bit of a long way of saying that AI is great, but as my dad says, AI plus $2.50 will get you on the subway. AI is now a commodity, which means the unique thing here is still the insight, the thing you understand about the customer that no one else does, the hidden pain point. Then, using AI to scale that process is now a possibility, maybe. As a side note, I recently had an idea for a niche TV show called The Problem Hunters, where me, or someone better on screen than me, if possible, goes into businesses, runs a bunch of aired customer interviews, then sidles up to those businesses and watches them operate for a few weeks, documenting the high-level stuff. Startup nerds could watch this, and it'd basically be a proxy for deep customer work. For example, the first episode might be the problem hunters following people who build fences in people's yards in the suburbs to try and figure out why it's so comically expensive. We dig in on process, sourcing, staffing, competition, demand, marketing, where they spend their money, where they spend their time, all of it. Then, each week, we do the same thing at accounting firms and divorce attorneys and zoos and plumbers and HVAC repair companies and bowling alleys and community colleges. We'd basically be searching for dams, things builders could fix that'd be fun, right? If there's anyone listening who produces these sorts of things, let's make problem hunters happen. Also, I just came up with a better name in real time. The show is now called What's Your Problem? And I'm even more excited about it. Anyway, today we're going to talk about finding and surfacing the stuff your customer absolutely hates. Humans will go to extraordinary lengths to avoid doing something uncomfortable. If you find that thing and solve it for them, a business usually follows. Humans make decisions on envy, not greed, and humans take action based on avoiding discomfort rather than seeking comfort. I truly believe that like 10% of my married friends got married because it'd be too uncomfortable to break up. If you're a friend and listening to this podcast, don't worry, I'm not talking about you. Anyway, let's get into it. As even passive listeners of the show know, because I won't shut up about it, I had a baby and I moved to Connecticut. For a huge part of my life, that sentence would have made me want to drink a glass of the leftover lukewarm shrimp stock we had from a delightful shrimp and grits Sunday dinner last night. Shout out New York Times recipe app. But now I love where I'm at. Unfortunately, the suburbs are a breeding ground for the Diderot effect. This is the formal name for the thing that happens when you get a nice couch, then suddenly realize your rug and coffee table and TV don't look as good as they used to in comparison and a $1,500 couch ends up costing multiples of that because you redo your whole living room to fit the standard the couch set. The hidden costs to acquiring new things are usually multiples of the actual cost of the thing. So a few months in, we decided we needed a second car to shuttle the little guy around. We landed on getting a used car and dove into some online research to figure out exactly which car to buy. It turns out that all the ranking sites, Car and Driver, US News, Kelly Blue Book, etc., just list like every car now. I assume their business model is affiliate and ad-driven, which means they're incentivized to just list as many cars as they can fit on their website. The category for Best Midsize SUVs for Families had 14 results. That is less than helpful. Next, we started scrolling through used car listings to see if anything stuck out, but I felt like Seinfeld doing that bit about reading ingredients on pain medication in the drugstore, as if I've got any clue as to what any of it means. This one has 0.3 tetrahydrazoline. That's a good amount of that. Is a 2019 with 25,000 miles and no leather better than a 2020 with 30,000 miles and a sunroof? Who knows? Also, my antenna were up. I'm always hesitant with any transaction where I'll only interact with the other side of the transaction once, especially when there's asymmetric information and they've got it. It's just way too easy to get screwed or at least feel like you've been screwed. The undercurrent to all of this searching was the final boss of uncomfortable moments, which was looming negotiating with a used car salesman, which sounds significantly less pleasant than that glass of warm shrimp juice. All of these headwinds had us ready to throw in the towel and just buy a new car when my father-in-law jumped in. Just use my guy, he said. My father-in-law is the type of guy who has a guy for everything. You tell him what you want, and he goes and finds the best car for you, he negotiates a good deal for you, and then he just brings you the paperwork. You sign it, then he tells you where to pick up the car, and you're done. The clouds had parted. How much does it cost, we asked. 500 bucks, but he'll easily save you more than that negotiating. Give us his info, my wife and I yelped at the same exact time. The reason most startups fail isn't that the tech needed to build them doesn't exist. It's that the entrepreneur didn't find something the customer hated doing enough to pay someone else to do for them. That moment, the yelp from my wife and I, needs to be the center of your business. If your first customers do it, there might be something there. If your first customers don't, you need to dig a little bit more. The way to make your life easy isn't ChatGPT, at least not yet. It's to find the moment your customer absolutely despises and then help them teleport from one side of that moment to the other. Help them skip the mess. AI might make that teleportation easier, but finding the moment and the customer is still going to be up to you. Today, we'll get into that, how to find and build for the stuff your customer hates doing. After, a message from some friends of ours. This episode of Idea to Startup Podcast is brought to you by our good friends at Build. That's BYLDD.com. They're a development agency that helps early stage startups build and launch scalable, revenue generating software businesses. Mm-hmm. Development from non technical founders and teams without a tech person on them is the massive elephant in the room that just sits there judging you while you run all of your customer work and intent tests. And once you've validated your idea and you know that customers want what you've decided to build, you've got to figure out how to build it. That's where things get sticky. You probably don't have hundred K to throw at a huge creative agency. And even if you did for your first product, you probably shouldn't, you might roll the dice on Upwork and it might work, but you'll need to project manage the whole thing. The cost will be a black box and I cannot stress enough the might in that first sentence for 10 K and roughly a month of work build will get your validated product up and out. We've advertised build a few times. And the one question we've been asked is can companies that work with them end up growing big? The answer is absolutely. They've worked with companies that have gone on to Y Combinator and raised money at 10-figure valuations. Build is the way to get your first product built, and that product can lay the infrastructure and the foundation for any size company. Head to build.com to talk to Ayush, that's B-Y-L-D-D dot and tell him you heard about it through Idea to Startup. Back to it. Solving Hard Problems. A day or two after getting the car guy's email, we reached out and we got on the phone to talk about what type of car we actually wanted. We'd had a specific car in mind, but he immediately pushed back. You won't be able to fit a car seat in there, he said. You're going to be miserable. You need to size up, and in my opinion, you got to get a different car altogether. We waited on pins and needles for him to finish his thought on which car exactly we should get, but he didn't give in that easy. Why don't you take my survey, he said. It's a hundred bucks more, but it'll ask you a bunch of questions and then spit out the right car for you. Then I'll go find you a great deal on it. That hundred dollars was even easier to spend than the first 500. It actually seemed too cheap. Telling us what car to get was at least as valuable as finding the car was. The questions in the survey ranged from how exactly we'd use the car, to how tall we were, to how our family would grow, to payment range, to how important brand of car was, to features we'd overpay for versus features we would definitely not overpay for. A few days later, our results came back. He had chosen a clear winner. The email started, the absolute best car in the world for you is, and then he told us. The car wasn't on our original list, and we don't know anyone who has it. Honestly, we would have never even considered it, but since he suggested it, we quickly agreed. This was the car for us. Go find it. Now, he's out in the world finding and negotiating a great deal for us. At some point in the next week or two, he'll send us paperwork to sign, then we'll pick up the car. A car, like a house or a new job, comes with a story. When people find out about your car or house or job, they ask about it, and you dive in. My father-in-law's used car guy is now a central character in our car story. Each time we tell it, we'll spread his business. People talk about products that help them solve really hard problems. We can't resist. We love being helpful and we love saving people discomfort. Plus everyone loves having a guy. Solving a really hard problem is the best possible marketing strategy for a startup. I've already told the story a few times because I'm a nerd about this sort of thing. And I've already passed on two referrals back to the car guy. When I reached out to ask him for his website to send to friends, he said, oh, I never built one. After I did this the first couple of times, the challenge has always just been keeping up with demand, not looking for new customers. It seems like every person I find a car for ends up referring me to like five or 10 more people. When you help people solve hard problems, they talk. When I asked how many cars he bought a week, he replied, oh, anywhere from 10 to 20 most weeks. If you're keeping score at home, 20 cars a week at 600 bucks a car for 52 weeks is a cool 625 grand. I didn't get into the automation or the databases or how he negotiates or where he finds the cars. I'm obviously curious, but the guy's busy enough and it doesn't really matter for this pod. You all know what you would do with this type of business. You would build individual systems that would scale and become the business. You would automate and facilitate referrals from happy customers. You would build the survey and pair it with Zapier so that the right car suggestion with the right blurb was sent a few days after someone filled out that survey. You would build out a database of used car dealers and you would create relationships with them so that you could buy quicker and negotiate better pricing. You'd probably just hire a VA or two to handle all of this so that you could spend your time meeting with new clients exclusively. Maybe you could leverage ChatGPT for this. I asked it to compose an email suggesting a Honda CRV to a family of four, and here is what I got quote: I hope this email finds you well as someone who understands the importance of finding the right car for your family. I would like to suggest a Honda CRV for your family of four. The CRV is a popular compact SUV that provides ample space for a family of four with comfortable seating, roomy cargo area, and plenty of room for child car seats. The vehicle is equipped with advanced safety features, such as collision mitigating braking, lane departure warning, and adaptive cruise control that ensures the safety of your family. The email went on like this for a couple more compelling paragraphs and could have easily become part of the product. Once you've found that awful moment, the one you'll help your customer teleport over, AI can likely help you scale it. So how do you find that moment? Decision hunting. Why do CEOs get paid so much? This is a question I hear asked a lot. And the answer is actually pretty simple because they make decisions. People hate making decisions. The majority of our pain comes from avoiding decisions. It is rare that the right or wrong decision will be all that bad for you in the short or long term. What really hurts is making no decision. And that is what most people do. When I'm looking for painful moments, for problems that might be worth solving, I'm really searching for those no-decision moments. The places where there should be a decision, but because there's so much discomfort, people either avoid the decision altogether or drag their feet making it. Taking an uncomfortable decision off of someone's plate is the fastest way to get a stranger to buy something from you. Removing an uncomfortable decision leads to an instant yes from customers. I didn't need to hear anything about the car guy who was about to charge me $500 to know that it sounded way less uncomfortable than the alternative. I just knew he was teleporting me from not having a car to having one, and he was taking ownership of the decision process. Perfect. The decisions people avoid tend to have a couple of characteristics in common. First, there's a lack of information, and it's really difficult to acquire quality information on the decision if you aren't an expert in the space. Second, they have a high cost, both a dollar cost and an emotional cost. Third, these decisions are public. People are going to know about them. Fourth, the decisions are emotional. Fifth, they include lots of difficult to quantify variables. And sixth, a lot of times these decisions have never been made before and might never be made again. Here is a great example. Chronic pain is a massive problem. Depending on what research you believe, somewhere between 20 and 30% of people suffer from chronic pain that impacts them every day. Chronic pain is hard to treat because of all the variables. If you tear your ACL, you tore your ACL. Diagnosis and treatment are pretty clear. But chronic headaches could be neurological. They could be musculoskeletal. They could be stress-driven or depression and anxiety-related or due to ankle tightness. Seriously, they could be due to ankle tightness. They could be because your hips aren't aligned or your core is weak or your glutes don't fire. And whatever the root cause was, the injury changes over time as your nervous system gets used to the pain. So even if you align your hips and they were the initial problem, your nervous system is now used to the pain and will fire those pain synapses without any underlying physical reason. Chronic pain is a complicated rat's nest that requires physical and mental rehabilitation, and doctors generally want no part of it because of how hard it is. So if you have chronic pain, it's not that there are no cures. It's just that you're in charge of project managing something that'll likely take 10 doctors to figure out and finding doctors, trying them, deciding when they haven't worked and figuring out that it's time to try something new is exceedingly uncomfortable, especially when you've got headaches. So 20 to 30% of the population has chronic pain because the problem of chronic pain is hard. If you can't tell, I'm a little obsessed with this problem. As we were working with the car guy, my mind couldn't stop floating back to it. I had chronic headaches for years, and I was thinking about how welcome it would have been for someone to say, hey, you've got chronic headaches and they're bad. I know it. I'm going to help manage this for you. I'll make appointments, I'll track the diagnoses, and I will continue to help you until you find the right solution. I kept thinking about how the care provider decision had all the same uncomfortable variables, about how welcome an expert in the space, someone telling me what to do would have been. So I tossed up a few ads for a company that would do this in a few Reddit threads for people with chronic back pain. I said that I'd help them find new doctors and treatments and make new appointments for a six month stretch to attack the pain and try to help them kick it. It would cost $500 a month. There were a few other details other than it started with an application, basically a survey of how you felt and what you'd already tried. Within three hours, I had five applications, five people eager and willing to pay for a thing that didn't even have a website. I responded to each saying I wouldn't be able to guarantee they'd get better, just that I'd help them facilitate a bunch of appointments. I would help them make those decisions. Amazing, one person replied immediately. When can I start? I can start today. I then told them that I was just stress testing an idea and that the service hadn't been built yet and they were genuinely sad Please make this, they wrote in their email with a bunch of exclamation points. I have a group of people that would all want it too, they said. People talk about hard problems. Back and forth. There's a gold rush in AI right now, and there probably should be. It's useful, but not on its own and not in all the obvious scenarios. The good thing about it is this is your chance, your excuse to go problem hunting for the moments that people hate, the decisions they avoid making. The opportunity for your product to be a teleportation device, to pick them up at one side of the problem and drop them off at the other, like my father-in-law's car guy did. And once you find that problem, leveraging the AI stuff to scale it is brilliant. Mix in the VA stuff, Zapier, no code, our old friend Linguini, all the tools to build just about any sort of product you like are available. There has never been a better time to be a solo entrepreneur. Go problem hunting first then build after. And again, if you're a TV producer or work at HBO or just have a high quality camera and want to film a little silly series, how much fun would what's your problem be? Come on. This was the idea to start a podcast brought to you by Tacklebox. If you've got a startup idea and a full-time job, come on over. We'll help you build it right. Head to gettacklebox.com and apply. Have a great week.